Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another special edition of George Ezra and Friends. My name is George Ezra. I will be your host for today's show. And this is George Ezra and Friends on songwriting. A heads up, as ever, there might just be some swearing. You know, just, there you go. I've let you know, that might happen. So today's episode puts the focus on songwriting, how people do it, where ideas come from, what works, what doesn't, and we got told the stories behind some great songs like Tom Jones's It's Not Unusual, which is you know, amazing. To start us off, one of the UK's most prolific songwriters, if not the most prolific songwriter, and a friend of mine, uh, it is Ed Sheeran. I got told really early on that to become a good songwriter you had to treat it like an instrument and write a song a day. So um, I don't really do it as much anymore because you know I end up doing a lot of promo but if I, if I go in to write a song I'll make sure I'll do like five in a day. Even if they're completely shit you just like write something to get it out there. The day that I wrote Shape of You that was one of five and the other four were like so-so, you know. And but, will they have been like four attempts on the same theme? They, like, will you go in and write no, five Shape of Views? No, I'd go in, I think the first song we did, we wanted to do like a country song. The second song, Shape of You, was originally a, a Little Mix cut. So we were like, well, let's write a song for Little Mix. Um, and that's where that, I know people say it was like Rihanna and stuff, but that kind of, kind of came later. Um, and then uh, the next song we did was for a boy band. And like, it was just a day of... Let's just write fucking loads of songs. Hit Steve, Steve Mack, who I did it with, he wrote Flying Without Wings, which is... Amazing. Just, just makes him fucking king. Um, and he also did Susan Boyle's uh, I Dreamed a Dream album. I He's got this huge, huge fucking play. And, uh, like, because everyone says... Everyone's always like, oh yeah, no, it's, you know, Steve, Steve Mack doesn't do some cool things. And he's like, well, 14 million sold's quite cool. And I'm like, yeah, mate, yes, it is. But uh, so we... He had a list of people that he was pitching for. So we went in and we wrote for all these people. Um... And that's usually how I do it. Like, I'm rarely... I've just done a soundtrack for a movie that I wrote all myself in my kitchen and made with, with, with Joe. So we, we just recorded it. And, and that's a very, like, 100% me project. But most of the time, I'm writing songs with people that I respect and admire. When you're writing for yourself, do you switch off the valve that is also writing for other people or is it kind of let's write a great song and then at the end of it decide? Yeah, kind of. I mean, like halfway through you kind of know. So like, and it's not even whether it's a good song or not. It's just, it just, yeah, clicks, it, it, just clicks with you. So like with Castle on the Hill, I was like, no, no, this one's for me. Let's finish this one for me. Yeah. And do you ever, do you ever walk into a room, say you were saying Little Mix, you walk into a studio and go, right, today we're going to write a song for Little Mix. And therefore, you're, the way that you're approaching that song yeah. is different. Yeah, so I did a song uh, that I, th I, think, I think is going to be for them now, but for Camila Cabello. And uh, I went in and I was like, well, if I was Camila, this is what I'd like to sing. And if I was a fan of Camila, I'd want her to have this. Okay, like, I see. Yeah, so you kind of tick the boxes with the, the, uh, the Liam Payne song that uh, I helped on the... Um, you ever hear that strip that down song? That that was very much like all the members of One Direction come out and had their own little thing, and I was like, he needs to have a line in there that there's like I used to be in Wendy now because like he's the kind of he's the guy that like likes R and B and that's such an R and B like swagadocious swagadocious. That own that. That's like your own word now. Swagadocious line, yeah. <laughs> Amazing, yeah. So I was like with that with this song like. 
you know, Harry's Harry's gone down that route, Nile's gone down that route, Lou's gone down that route, Zane's gone down that route, but this this lane that Liam can have is like very like self explanatory about what, what he can do. I heard as well that the strip that down. Oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that is me, yeah. yeah. Um, I actually make sure every song that I've I'm on, I make sure that there's a either a backing vocal or a guitar played on, just nice. so there's like a like nod. Yeah. Uh, Love Yourself is one of my favourite songs of the last kind of five years or so I just love it did you not toy with the idea of keeping it for yourself no and ev- like th- this is the thing because everyone has a different story about that now but I played it to all the people I play my records to uh, and every single one of them was like eh. you know but, uh, but man it's it's the way the it's the way the fucking cookie crumbles. And, and like, also, it's his song. He owns it. Like, the way he does it is yeah. so cool. And, and for me, like, I had a year off and had one of the biggest songs in the world that someone else sung. I didn't, I didn't have to do anything. I, I had a year off and could still earn. Like, it was, uh, it was the best possible outcome for me. Like, I, I don't think if I'd have released that song, it would have been a hit, personally. Because I think it came at a time where he was so polarising mm. and no one wanted him to win. And then he came with, what do you mean? And it suddenly shifted and people were like, oh, actually, this is really fucking good. And then Sorry came and then Love Yourself came and, and then it just cemented him as a, a great artist. And, and this, um, this year that you had off, I know this is a shitty sentence, but did you learn anything about yourself that you were able to then apply to this new record while you were out there? Did you, have you approached this record differently because of the time off? I don't know. I think I realised who my group of friends were because I spent pretty much all all year with my girl my girlfriend is in my group of friends we we she went to my high school as well and we kind of spent our whole year with 12 people and it cut it, it has made it a lot different because like when i'm on tour it's like my touring team and then i'm hanging out with other artists and that's super cool but you never really you never never really have this kind of conversation when you've just met someone you know it's uh and I think um, I think it's it's important sometimes just to sit down and complain, you know, like because you're not meant to complain. Because like I, I say, um, I, on the first song on Divide, uh, uh, I have a line where I say, "Nobody wants to see you down in the dumps because you're living your dream. This shit should be fun." But like sometimes, sometimes you're just pissed off and want to have a fucking rant. And if you're having a rant, someone you don't really know, and they're like why the fuck are you complaining in your life like th- that's not what you want to hear in that in that state you just want to shout at someone and for, for them to an nod hour. and just yeah and for them like even if they don't agree with it just and that's what your friends do and I think my year off was a lot of finding out that about myself I guess you just quoted a lyric from Eraser and that was one song in particular that I was keen to know does that take a bit of a run up to release a song that's that honest or do you go Fuck it, I'm just gonna put it out. Do you know what's weird? Is like I've, I've, all, I, and I, and I, I learned this from watching how my peers did it. Was um, every, everyone when they hide stuff, it eventually comes out anyway. So if you've got addictive tendencies and you hide it, and you're always this clean cut person, eventually it's going to come out, and the public will catch you out. And it'll be worse. And so much worse. So like ever since the beginning of my career, I've always like made no secret about things that I get up to, good and bad. I'm just like, you know, I, I can write a song like Bloodstream and put that goes on, like, BBC radio and people are listening to a song about a trip, you know, like, and it's... And, like, no one bats an eyelid because you're saying it. So with, with Eraser, it was more just kind of like, this is how I feel at this time, no holes barred, this is everything, complete honesty. And, you know, no one's picked up on it. I mean, even if, like, 
a tabloid newspaper who listens to that and goes, oh, drug scandal, like it's, I've got there first, isn't it? Like it's not, no one can break a story. No one can break a story on that. So like, I, I do feel like honesty in music is like the key to everything. And from Ed to someone who's released one of the best albums of 2020 so far, in my humble opinion, it is Jesse Ware. You're on the most recent Ed Sheeran record. Yeah. New man. Yeah. I mean, look, I got lucky. Like, Ed, Ed can do everything himself. He doesn't need anybody else in the bloody room. Just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, well, I think that's like testimony to him as well. Just kind of, it's just nice to do, isn't it? Yeah. What was your, what, what did, did you write the song with him? Yeah, so we were, I flew over to the States. I just had my three month scan for my baby. I flew over to the States. I hadn't told people I was pregnant, obviously, because you kind of just, you don't know if yeah, it's going to yeah, work yeah, out. Yeah. Scan was great. Flew over, was going there for writing sessions. I was supposed to do a day. LA. Yeah, LA, yeah. sorry, yeah. It was, it was around that kind of, have you been to LA when it's like the Grammys time? Never. It's mental yeah. and full on. I think and I was there just at the cusp. Uh-huh. Well, especially when you're with, like, hanging out with Ed Sheeran and Benny Blanco, who... It's like people are just coming in and chatting about, but it's it's really full on. So anyway, I go over there, and uh, I was supposed to be in the studio with Benny and Ed the next day. But I flew in, and Benny's one of my best mates. Ed's a really good friend, and I was like, I've flown in, I'm here. Can I pop in? He's over like, come over, come over. We're gonna, we want to see you. So I went over to say hi to everybody, be in the house. Benny's got his studio in his house. It's like a revolving door for like people to just come in. It's very kind of... Doors open. Doors open, really relaxed. um, Almost like a commune. There's Mm -hmm. always someone to stay. So um, I just went to see my mates. And Benny started doing something, or Ed started a riff, and then it became this thing. And I was just sitting on the couch being like, nodding my head, being like, "That's that's kind of sick. And then lyrics started flowing, and I just got involved with the lyrics. Amazing. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah. And was it, did he kind of, you know, we were talking earlier about that kind of magic in a room. Mm. Was there that feeling of like, oh shit, this might make the album? I feel like, yeah, I mean, Benny, when Benny does like production, like basically he doesn't really change it from the demo. So mm-hmm. it sounds pretty much done. So it, he's such a brilliant producer, like it just sounds shit hot. So it felt really exciting, it felt really hooky, and like everyone was kind of singing it, being, and you don't want to say anything, because you don't want to be like, so Ed, is this going to make the record? <laughs> know, is it going to be a single? Um, but it just felt exciting, and like, I think there was absolute magic when we wrote uh, Say You Love Me, okay. for the second record, that felt, you know, we were just in a locked room for 20 minutes, and it just, like, it was just flew out of us, like, this song. So, yeah, it was I hate beautiful. songs like that because I just wish everyone I know. was like that. I I've know. got myself in this position, so I've just released this tune, Paradise. Yeah, it's very, very good. Oh, thank you. I've, like, that wasn't finished over 18 months. Like, the, the ver- like how I do it is I write a verse, I'm like, that's pretty sick, put that to bed, and then I'll be playing it four months later, and then the pre-chorus will come. And I go, oh, oh that sounds like a pain in the arse. But no, it's quite nice really? for me because I completely forget. Yeah. Oh, like a lot of the tunes, when I'm writing with Joel, that's one of those kind of like, let's sit down, let's write so a tune. So did you write Paradise on your own? Yes. God, you're so good. <laughs> did you have all those like, um, those kind of um, big choral, like the, the big kind of like, sh- not shouty bits, like the yeah, yeah, together yeah, the bits, like, were you... I knew that. that you knew that was going to be yeah, in yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. 
Yeah, like I, the the first bit I came up with was the call and response, but I didn't have the lyrics, so it was just da 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 like I knew. And I was worried at first if it was too cheeky. Like the last one on the first verse is, it's long. And then it goes, how long? Well, it's a mighty long. No, that's what you're good at. Yeah, it's kind of, I do love doing that stuff. Do you know what? I'm not going to lie. Throughout this process of sitting down with people and talking to them, it's, it's been great for me to share and address some of my own insecurities about songwriting. Um, because they're definitely there, they, they definitely exist. I think there's still sometimes a myth that we all write songs in isolation, and that does happen, it can happen, but it's also really common for upcoming songwriters to get put with more established writers so they can learn and bounce off each other. I think it's it's learning, but that's you know that's not the, the main reason you're in the room together. I think that the main reason that you you would end up collaborating with somebody is that it's somebody you're hoping that you trust and it it makes of you a far more efficient writer I think but yeah I I would stress the fact that it it needs to be somebody that you know and trust and want to share the songs with you know that that song's going to go on and take on its own life and it's a really beautiful thing to know that it's linked to somebody you know that you that you love yeah I'd say that. Um, Lewis Capaldi, he's got a fascinating tale about how collaborators helped nudge along one of his biggest hits, Someone You Loved. That's coming up after Niall Horan shares his approach to creating songs. Are you kind of writing at the moment, recording? Yeah, um, obviously just finished tour. Some people, I don't know what you're like, but I struggle to write on the road. There's a lot of, like, sound check at this time, you know, dinner at that time, blah, blah, like, and getting into a bit of a routine. Obviously, you're in a city, you want to see the city as well. Um, it's like, I never really got into writing on the road, but now that I'm off it, I have been writing, like in my holidays during and the off parts of the tour, I would write a few tunes here and there. But yeah, I wanted, I had a really good meeting with the label a couple of weeks ago in LA and some really cool people that I want to work with and, and um, some people that I've always worked with that's kind of, if it's not broke, don't fix it. But, mm. I'm ready to go and... And are you, like, do you appreciate and enjoy that kind of collaborating with... I always had it when I first signed my record deal. In my head, I was kind of like, as soon as I sign this, I'm agreeing to work with these people. And if they've got opinions or advice or whatever, I'm going to listen to them. Exactly. And do do you feel as if you're you're comfortable doing that? Yeah, 100%. Um, I, I do like writing on my own, but there's nothing better than when you think you've got a good idea and then given getting someone else's opinion on it and then they bring it even yeah, more course. to life and that, that's my favourite part especially when you've got like a bit of a personal relationship like I know yourself and Joel yeah yeah like you worked a lot with Joel didn't you yeah so and it works well you're but that's it as well is I think there's a a trust thing that has to come into it mm. for me we've all been there before where you go into a room with someone you've never met before <laughs> and you're going to try and write a tune in the day and you're kind of like and you're spilling your heart out in some cases. Yeah, yeah like, you are. And you are, mate. Yeah, I don't even tell my friends this. But yeah. I don't, that, yeah, that's it. From the age of 11 to fucking 17, I never wrote a song about myself. Yeah. I always wrote songs about, like, other people. I just yeah. made up Him, shit. Her, yeah, yeah, yeah. they, that totally. was the same. Exactly, and I, just, and I would just make up shit um, and kind of hope that it fucking sounded like a cohesive song. But, um... Yeah, for like the longest time I did that, and then 
it wasn't until I started co-writing with people that they drew that out of me. Because at fucking 18, 19, you're like, you don't really, and it's a, it's a horrible thing, it's a bad thing, and it's thingy, but you don't really, you're not really in touch with your feelings, or you don't want to be in touch with your feelings. Toxic masculinity. But, um, but it's like... I, it's, I call it self-preservation. Yeah. <laughs> 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 but, um, but yeah, so you're kind of like, uh, yeah, you kind of shut that off, and then it wasn't until I sat in a room with someone for the first time. There's actually a couple of guys called Nick Atkinson and Ed Holloway who I've done a lot of the album with, and they, I think they just went to me. So what's going on in your life? And it's like that's such a. At 18, no one had really asked me it in that way before. I was like, "What, what the fuck's it to you? Like, what's going on in my life?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right? Do you know what I mean, it was like, "Fucking watch yourself." Like, but I'm like, like, do you know what I mean? It was like, it was so weird, and it was just like. But it immediately just draws this, like, to draw something out of, like, okay, cool, I'm going to write about myself. But now it's, like, it's not a thing of, like, I don't go, fucking, cut me open and I bleed. Do you know what I mean? It's, like, I just kind of, just fucking, I just, I just do it and then... Now it's become, and it's made me much more able to speak about how I'm feeling and stuff like that, which is amazing. But um, it's, it's just, now I'm just, like, this is just what, what's happening in my life. I'm just writing it. I think for anyone listening as well, it's worth pointing out that often when you go into a room to co-write, actually there can be an air of, I don't give a shit what's going on in your life, I want to write a belter. That that does happen. And so for those two people to ask you that, I think is testament to them and what you've done with them. Incredible. And it's like, that was my second ever co-writing session with them. So it was like, as in like, I did my first co-writing session with a guy called Ollie Green, who's brilliant. And my second ever co-writing session with Nick and Ed, and they ended up being, they're all over the album. Yeah. They're, they're, their juices are all over the album, if yeah. you will. But, um, <laughs> and, uh, I, to, I always have to lower the tone. But, um, uh, yeah, but, uh, so I think, yeah, for them to do that was just, it, was, it could have been a very different process. When I first started doing co-writes, if someone did something I didn't like, I'd just go, oh, cool, yeah, like, oh, yeah. And then by the end of it, you're like, fuck off, fuck you, that's shit, yeah, get yeah. out. Like, there's so many times that I, I would, like, try and be like, oh, no, I'm not sure about that. Mm. And they were like, persistent fucker. And you're like, yeah. oh, yeah, cool, man. And just in the back of your head, like, well, this is a waste of a day. Yeah, I'm going to get a... home and just, I'm going to cringe when I hear yeah, this. Yeah. Totally. There's some times as well when they would do that with me, I would say, oh, cool. And I thought, right, I'll keep it in now, but seeing, like, two hours. I'm going to say, I don't really like that middle eight and take it out. Do you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> yeah. I pl- now that I've thought about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I bookmark it. But it's like, yeah, man, it's like, it's like you say, people being persistent, and it's like, I've got so many okay songs. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I, I'm sure as well you've just got fucking, uh, like, uh, for every great song you write, there's so many, like, it's just fine ones. Ten, if not more, yeah. for everyone, there's ten yeah. kind of like, oh. That are, like, good, they look fine, but it's like, you don't, you're not, you don't feel something when you listen to it or when you play it, and it doesn't really like just, it doesn't mean anything to you. So it's like, I've got so many of those fucking yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. I'd rather come out of a session with nothing than an okay song. Because yeah, yeah. it's like, what? We don't need to do this. No, right? no, we no. don't need to both put ourselves through this to the point where we just squeeze something out that's terrible. Do you know what I mean? So, uh, yeah, I quite like to just now be like, that's not working, let's do this. That's, like, yeah, do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Keep, keep it, keep it rolling. And that's what I found, like, that's how someone you loved came about in a session. I was with TMS and Romans. We were sit- we were working on something that was very uncharacteristically happy. 
Right. And it was till I thought the album was done, ready to go, whatever. And then um, we were working on this song, and I love I, I love the song, but it was just like cool. We got halfway through it, we hit a bit of a snag, and then the TMS guys went, let's let's work on something else for ten minutes just to kind of like jog the brain a bit. And it was like I was I've got this thing from back. I've got it, and I played them on my phone, and they were like, play it. Out. I can't really can't really picture it. Play it and thingy. And I played them it. And they were like, cool, let's work on that. And it was like, do you know what I mean? Like, if that, if they hadn't went fucking, let's just try something else for a couple of minutes, it's like, it just wouldn't have, uh, wouldn't have happened. Do you know what I mean? With- I'm grinning because I love these stories. Oh, the- but, but those moments where it's like, if we hadn't done yeah. X, Y, or Z. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fucking, it's, and it's scary to think of it almost, but it's like, thank, thank fuck. Oh, you know man. Yeah, man. But, that, but that, that's a verse, pre chorus, and chorus that I wouldn't have finished, that was just sitting on my phone logs. Mm. And I was just like scrolling through it, and I was like, "What about this one?" And it was like, <laughs> do you know what I mean, but it's like, it was like a song that I'd sat at the piano for like four hours, hated myself for three hours and forty-five minutes, and thought, "You're fucking shit at this. You're <laughs> terrible. The album's finished. Fuck it." And then for that last fifteen minutes, I just bashed out the verse melody, pre-chorus melody, and the chorus melody, but I couldn't think of lyrics, so I was like, "Fuck it." I'll just wait to the next album. And the worst thing, the most frustrating thing about that, and this is for me anyway, yeah. is so often my most successful songs have come extremely easy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and not because mm-hmm. I'm good at it or yeah. anything, it's just something about yeah. those songs where it's like, cool. they just, mm. although they, they take a bit of work later on down the line, the yeah. bulk of it comes yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in a yeah. really short amount sure. of time. I think people mistake that for like, you sit down, you pick up the tart and you go, Dring, and it's like it starts, but I think I mean like, like like with something I loved. I fucking sat at the piano for four hours before it came very easy. Yes. Like, do you know what I mean? So I think sometimes you have to kind of just it's like rummaging around in your yeah. brain a bit and being like, like fucking get that out of the way, get that out of the way, and then you go right, I'm having that. Yeah, for there's very very few times I'll sit down and go dum dum dum, and it's like that was my song. That's <laughs> <laughs> a hit. To <laughs> I love that, and I can't wait to hear what creations come from Lewis next. Um, I hope, I'm sure he's busy at the moment, I'm sure. Now, ladies and gentlemen, Sir Tom Jones and Niall Rogers, legends, uh, both of them. We'll hear from Niall in a second, but first, while Tom may not write to his own songs, he always had an ear for what made a great song. And this goes back to before he'd even had his first hit. Tom Jones, you know, he just knew how to meld that song to his voice so that no one else could better it, which to me seems like a pretty good trick. Um, yeah, here we go. I was signed to, to Decker, but they didn't know what to do with me, you know. So then Gordon Mills came on the scene, saw me in this, this club in Wales, brought me to London, and uh, within the year, you know, this was in the summer of 64, he had written It's Not Unusual, which was my first hit song. He was in the middle of recording it, and um, a friend of his, Les Reed, who's also a songwriter, had been commissioned to, rec- uh, to write a song for Sandy Shaw, who by this time had had like two or three number one records. So Les called Gordon and said, I need a song for Sandy Shaw, do you have anything? And Gordon said, well, I'm, I'm writing this song called a song unusual and it's got this Bayon beat which Sandy Shaw was using with some of the songs that she had done so he said uh, you know I've got this so we could finish it off together it's not finished yet and then they asked me if I would do the demo on it 
in um, Regent Street, a recording place called Regent Sound. And when you were hired as a vocalist to record a demo, would you have been paid for that time regardless yes. of what the song yes. was then used for? Yeah, yeah. Because Gordon, in order to get some money for us, you know, we were doing the odd gig here and there, but um, I was doing demos, you know, of his songs, sometimes other people's songs, uh, for Leeds Music, who he wrote for. So this is how this song came about. You know, would you do the demo on this song? I said, sure. So I went there with my Welsh band to Regent Sound and, uh, and we did this. It's not unusual. And when I heard it back, I said, uh, I got to have this song. You know, and Le I mean, Gordon was going, well, you know, I mean, he wasn't fussed about it, but Les was like, well, Sandy Shaw, you know, she's had these number one records. <laughs> Who the hell are you to you know to get hold of this song? I said, well, I gotta have this song. If I don't get this song, I'm going back to Wales. I mean, that's how strong I felt about this song. And when you said things like that, you meant it. I meant it. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, what else could I threaten them with? You know, what else could I threaten Gordon with than than sort of yeah, saying, yeah. well, I'm, I'm not, I'm going back, and you know, and do some shows in these workmen's clubs, which I was doing all right with, you know. So, um, so I, they played it to Sandy Shaw. I mean, I heard this afterwards, and she said, "Whoever's singing that song, that's his song." <laughs> you know, I, I couldn't sing it like that. And the recording that we hear today hmm. is that the one that Sandy Shaw heard, or did you no, go and then re-record it? We re-recorded it then. It was just a rhythm section, my rhythm section, and um, Les and Gordon doing the background. But da da ba da. It was like you know voices. And I go, it's not unusual to be loved. But it was like a milder version. And then when we got in, we tried it like that, first of all, but that didn't work. Uh, but then Peter Sullivan, who was my recording manager, said, if we're going to do it, because he saw me uh, as a rock singer, yeah. you know, which I was really. Yeah, you I mean, are. I was wearing leathers and bloody, you know. But we couldn't get a song like that. I, I put one out called Chills and Fever, which was before, it's not unusual. Didn't make it. Made some noise, but and not And did you enough. release that as Tom Jones? Yes. Okay. That was the first one. That was in the, um, the summer of 64. But by the end of the year then, we, we, had, we had done, it's not unusual. So he said, if we're going to do it, we've got to make it harder. You know, we've got to make, we've got to, it's got to explode. Get, into hit, get it to hit them when they hear it. You exactly. Know? You know, before you even open your, vo your, your mouth, the, the arrangement has to be strong in order to, you know, perk people up. So what do we, what do we do? Instead of, you know, ba ba da ba da you know, vocally. So the, the, the bass drum was boom, chupa, boom, chupa, boom, chupa, boom, right? So he said, we need to capitalize on that. So Les Reed said, brass, let's, let, let me write brass. You know, all right, let's try it. So there was that bam, 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 It was just going along with the bass drum, really. And it's sexy already. Once the song starts, it's got that yeah. kind of... Yeah, so it's like it was pumping before I opened my mouth. So that's, uh, you know, that's how that happened. It's hard to release positive songs without them being sickly or cheesy, and you manage to do it so well. You know, it's easier, I think, to write Melancholy, or, you know, Woe Is Me, right. or Baby Broke My Heart, or, you know, to write upbeat songs that say, hey, 
It's all right to have fun. Right. It's hard to do. It is hard to do, especially, especially when things in society don't reflect that. And when, when I had this seismic shift, and it came from one of my jazz teachers who really embarrassed the hell out of me one day. I was getting ready to go do a boogaloo gig, as I called it, and I had a sour look on my face. And he said, Nah, what, what's wrong with you? And I said, well, I got to go do this bullshit boogaloo gig. He said, wow, a bullshit gig? What, what, what? To him, like, no gig is, like, you got a gig. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All gigs are great. Like, well, how do you do a bad gig? Especially if you haven't played it yet. And I said, well, look at these songs that we got to play. Uh, the band leader called me up and told me I need to learn these songs for the show tonight. And he said, so what's wrong with those songs? And I said, you know, they're bullshit pop songs, they're bullshit boogaloo songs. You know, he says, what, what, what do you mean? And I said, well, look, look at this set list. He's, and he looked at me and he said, nah, what makes you think you're the ultimate consumer? All of these songs are million sellers. So these millions of people are wrong, but you're right. And I said, what do you mean, Ted? He says, every last one of these songs are great. I says, what do you mean they're great? He says, these are great compositions. I said, look, this first song we got to play, Sugar Sugar by the Archies. You call that a great composition? He looked at me and he said, of course. And I went, sugar, do, 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 do. Oh, honey, honey, do, 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 do. Oh, you are my candy girl. And you, you call that a great composition? He said, absolutely. He said, Sugar Sugar's been number one for like five or six weeks. And then I said, but it's cheesy, corny bubblegum. And he said to me something that changed my life in one split second. He says, he says, I disagree with you. I think it's a great composition because it speaks to the souls of a million strangers. I went, wow. It speaks to the souls of a million strangers, a million people that would never know you, that you will never meet. Love what you just did. Holy cow. That's what I want to write. This is George Ezra and Friends on Songwriting. Before pandemic life became the norm for all of us in 2020, I got to travel to meet some fellow musicians at their homes um, for this show. And I'm incredibly lucky for that, I know. And, And I know that now more than ever, you know. And one person who opened the door and let me in not always a given, yeah. <laughs> yeah, somebody that was kind enough to open the door uh, was Shania Twain. Um, she had so much to share. It was one of those episodes where I pressed record, and you know, we just went. It was it was brilliant. And she had so much to share about how to write a hit, whether it's pop or country, of course, crossover artist, um, one oh one. Yeah, this is Shania Twain. It's a dark art, I think. I don't think it's easy to It do. is a dark art. Music, country music is very, and folk music, are very pleasant to listen to. They're easy to listen to. Uh, they just kind of roll along, and they're, you know, they're often not very complex in their chord progressions. They uh, are a little, they're just easy to listen to. The instruments are usually more organic. They're, 
Uh, there's softer sounds. It's not a distorted, mm-hmm. not a lot of a distortion uh, effect on anything usually. So it's easy on the ears in that sense. Um, but the, the contrast, which is what I've always loved about country music and, uh, and folk music, is they, they, they're going to roll along in these major chords and it'll be very pleasant. But then they're telling this terrible heartbreak story. So yeah. it's, it's, that is just brilliant. It's a skill. Absolutely. It's a skill to, oh, and they'll do the reverse. They'll, you know, if they do go to minors, a lot of the Southwestern music goes to the minors, but then they'll be singing of this happy song, <laughs> happy <laughs> yeah. sunshine song. But what I think it does as well is it means that for those that are listening to the story, there's a, there's like an extra reward on top of the face value song. So as you were saying, it's quite easy listening and a lot of people can enjoy it. But then for those that are willing to listen a little harder, they'll get even something more from that song. Exactly. It's very true. I think Europe, well, not just Europe, but on an international level, the audiences relate more to the folk side of country music Mm -hmm. because if they don't understand the language, they will miss out on the story. Mm. But the folk side of, of country really tells more of a story a lot of the time, even just in the music mm-hmm. and the way the, the music rolls out. And I try to do that because I know that sometimes people just sing along phonetically even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I th- well, I th- I've got a friend in Barcelona who was saying, especially when he was younger, his grasp on being able to talk English was next to none, but he could sing along to the whole of a Lady Gaga song and sing everything correctly without knowing what she was saying, was well, the example he used. And the, 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 words, the word that we've, the term that we've used now a couple of times is sing-along. Mm. So if you can, and I do try to, to write songs that are relatable, obviously as a story, but also as a sing-along, mm-hmm. because... Uh, that's what it creates. It creates a sing-along environment and um, it doesn't really matter if you know, even know what you're saying, <laughs> no, which is the case I know, you know. No, I'm with you completely. Sometimes it's just, it's just a reality. So you can't be too precious about your storytelling, yeah. no. knowing that that's the case on an internet. You know, when you're an international, you're creating music for the international audience. You have to think that way. Ah, oh, man, it was such a treat to sit down with Shania. In a minute or two, my good friend Sam Smith. But before that, Lily Allen explains why she first got into writing her own tracks. So then in 2006, you released All Right Still. Yeah. And like this, you worked with Greg Kirsten on that one? Uh, yeah. One track or two tracks, okay. yeah. So like how, how many years up until release day were you working on that record? How were you meeting these people? Kind of how did that come about? Um, well, um, I had a manager called George Lamb. Do you know who George Lamb is? He's like a... No, I feel like I know that name. He's like a TV presenter now. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I do know. He's Larry Lamb's yeah, yeah, son. Yeah, yeah. So he was my first manager. Well, actually, he was my second manager. But he managed a band called The Audio Bullies as well at the time. And he said to me, um, you're not really going to make any money out of this if you don't write your own songs. Because I was only, like, doing covers and stuff at the time. Um... And I thought, okay, well, I'd quite like to make some money. That would be good. Um, and he put some sessions in, one of which was with the band, uh, with this sort of like duo called Future Cut, who are um, two people called Darren and Tundi. And they had this little studio up in Manchester in Old Mount Street. 
uh, on Newmount Street, I can't remember. Anyway, um, it was like one of those sort of like weird business centres that um, yeah. they had like a tiny, tiny, tiny little studio in there. And I went up and I stayed with a friend of my dad's near to Manchester in the, on the moors and was there for like a week and the first song I ever wrote was Smile. No way. Yeah. That's really annoying. <laughs> I know, I never really <laughs> beat it. <laughs> um, yeah, it was the first song I ever wrote. And cool. how we hear it now, was it pretty similar to... Yeah, I never you... re-recorded the vocals. I've heard you say that you kind of record as you're writing. Yeah. Which annoys me as well, like in a good way. Yeah. I wish I could do that. It must be a pretty economic way of... Yeah, although I've, on this record, actually, is the only time that I've sort of started going back and, and redoing vocals. Um... Only because, like, beforehand, I've always really worked to the time constraints of whatever producer it is that I'm working with. And, you know, money constraints as well in terms of what the record label want to pay for in terms of, like, hotel mm. rooms and flights and, you know, whatever else. Um, but uh, this time round, I, you know, I've got my own studio now in King's Cross and so I've started ideas with people and then would bring them back um, and expand on those ideas. And I guess just because... You know, when I started an idea, my vocal would sound different to when I finished it six months later. So yeah. then I'd re-record the whole thing. But, yeah, it's the first time I've ever done it like that. I always try and write things, like, for myself that are relevant to me that other people might also be able to so empathise with or, you know, or not empathise with, but relate to. And I never really set out to write stories, like... You know, every, every song just sort of, like, starts with a phrase and then just expands, you know. So it's... it's um, I never, like, think, I want to write about this. It's always just a word that... So stuck in your mind. Well, yeah, the kind of, or, like... So much about, like, the phonetics of, you know, where, of whatever the music is and then the first word that comes out of my head. Because, I'll, I'll, you know, someone will play some chords on the piano and then I'll just stand in front of the microphone and sing along. And that, like, normally, just when I'm sort of, like, singing melodies, like, one word or kind of, like... Or even, like, it sounds like it might be a word, you know? Um, and then, like, ideas kind of evolve around that word or that phrase. So, like, with a song like URL Badman or Three, mm -hmm. as examples, do you start with the title and go, right, how do I write the song that fits this? Or do, or do you come up with the, like, I'm going to write about this... Um, three, like, the chords came, the chords were, were the first thing, and I was like, what is this, what is this song about? Um, and it just felt, like, childlike to me. <coughs> um, and so, I'm pretty sure that it's, that song started with the, uh, with the verse, the opening lyric of the verse, which is, you know, you say you're going, but you don't say how long for... And I wanted to kind of, like, play with this idea that it's a love... You know, it could be a love song to a lover, first of all, but then it reveals itself as being something else. And, uh, yeah, I just, like... I remembered um, having a conversation with my therapist, actually, about, um, you know, my daughters not being able to compute why I have to go so much, you know. Because, you know, you say to your kids, you know, Mummy's got to go to work, but really what they don't really have a concept of what work is or why work exists, you know, what, what the outcome of work is. That what they think is, you're leaving you're me. Leaving. And um, 
and and actually they internalize that they go you're leaving me i must have done something wrong you know because otherwise why would you want to leave me and also you know that matched with you know whenever i do see them i probably like uh, smother them in love a little bit too much, you know, because I overcompensate. Oh, okay. um, so I'll be like, you know, oh, God, I love you so much, and your homework is so brilliant, you know, blah, blah, blah. So when you've got your mum telling you that you, they lo she loves you so much, and then that mixed with her constantly just walking out on you, it's really confusing, yeah, <laughs> and imagine. mixed messages. And so that was kind of what I wanted to... And the only way to sort of articulate that in the song was to do it from her, their perspective. I thought, honestly, I thought it was amazing. Because <coughs> I genuinely, and I kind of kicked myself when I, when I heard it, it was like halfway through, probably exactly when I was supposed to realise what Ooh. was going on. I was like, oh, I get it. <laughs> I was like, oh, OK, <laughs> it's worked. <laughs> Did you have an idea of what you wanted this record to be compared to the first record? Like, coming out the back yes. of the first record, did you go, I know what I've learned and I know what I want to do? Yes, and I also, for me, with this, this album for me is almost like a part two to In the Lonely Hour. It's like, In the Lonely Hour, it's almost like it, it like electrified my life. And the thrill of it all is the ashes afterwards. <laughs> it's like In the Lonely Hour burnt me alive. And then, and then thrill of it all is, 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 it's almost my recovery album in a way. It was the recovery of becoming famous. That's why it's called the thrill of it all. It's, it's like coming out the end of it and just looking back and being like, oh my God, I got really down. And I, I was spat out yeah. a little bit, you know? And that's why the front cover, I wanted it to be, I wanted to look a bit, there's like just a bit messed up in it because I wasn't looking after myself when I was writing this record and I was going out and too much and I was getting in relationships where I was deliberately being with people that didn't love me back. It's almost like you sing in the lone, songs from the, in the lonely hour so much that I've almost almost convinced myself that I am this misery guts that only deserves to be miserable and so the thrill of all, I think, it was definitely recovery from from in the lonely hour. And did you find that you were latching on in, in a relationship term, to mm. going like, was that hand in hand with the party and going out too much? Uh, we, do you think something inside you wanted material in completely? A sense? I do uh, subconsciously. I didn't. I think that it was my comfortable place. I was like, I'm, I write, I sing sad songs, so I'm just gonna. This is this is what I have to do, and. It, it was comfortable. I felt more comfortable writing sad songs. But with this, with this next album that I'm going to do, it's not going to be sad. Do you have an idea of what you want to do? I do, yeah. I should just say, though, quickly, before we move on to the next record, your songs, I know that they have emotional and sad mm. undertones often. Yeah. I think they're so uplifting. Me too. I think the Me way too. you produce them and the like arrangement of, especially near the end, they're just yeah. huge. It's amazing. No, me too. I don't think they're... Uh, sad to me is the wrong word. They're Emotional. reflective. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's... It's... It's not... Yeah, it's not sad because they give me so much happiness. Yeah. You know? So I think... I don't think it's sad, but I think that this record definitely did get deep for me when I was writing it, maybe a bit too deep at okay. times. And so moving on to a third record, mm. do you have kind of mapped out what you want to achieve or say or do? Yeah, I want to just force myself to be a little bit happier. I'm, I'm in love with someone who loves me back and it's really hopeful. 
please write about it. I'm going you, to. You have to just And like, I am. I already have amazing. recently. Just trying to find interesting ways of saying it. I don't listen to a lot of like happy love songs, so I'm just trying to find interesting ways of saying I love you. But I can't ever write about something I'm not going through. And now I've finally experienced it, what it's like. But even in my everyday life now, even with him, he's amazing. I'm fighting my negativity all the time because it's it's going to be an ongoing thing for me. I got very comfortable in in my sadness, mm. you know, and just and just being a bit negative. I was always n positive to everyone else, but negative to myself. I think creatively, I think you being happy and in love, it, it will just it will do you wonders because it will be a new experience writing like that. And yeah. it will be testing Completely. at times, and I just think on the other end of it, the other side of it, it will it will only be a good thing. Completely. And I've also made a pact to myself that that even touch wood, anything happens, I I still won't write a sad album. I want to look back on these memories in with with hope and light and nice things, you know. Amazing. It's good. Mm, see, wise words. I told you. Um, and next. We're going over to Justin Young from The Vaccines. I've always, that's the other thing about, like, I've always tried to be as, like, direct as possible in my writing. Like, I love simple songs. I think people don't realise, like, simple songs are easy to write, but then they're, they're quite difficult to get right. And, like, uh, and, and, and I've always, be, I've always loved, like, kind of, like simple, but like direct music. Like I'm no, a product of my. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't stand music that's unnecessarily complicated because I'm convinced. Complicated for complicated sake. And I'm convinced yeah. that what often it is is it's artists that write an amazing simple song yeah. that hits all the right chords, and then they go right. And now I need to make this really unaccessible. No, I think that's yeah. I think that's off. I think that's often the way because people are scared. Like people are scared. It's funny, like how I know I've got like a lot of friends who are like scared of having. I don't know. It's almost like they're like not they're like self-destructive, but they're scared, scared of having of a big song or scared of success yeah. or like scared of the like attention that it'll bring. Because you know, you know, if you're if you're kind of operating under a certain you know, within a certain realm, within a certain sphere, then you're kind of, your music is either celebrated or ignored. You know what I mean? You can kind of like, the only people that are going to be talking about you and listening to you are the people that love what you do. Yeah. And then you get past that point and then you kind of have to put up with all the other stuff as well, which... Do you know what? We're so wrong, actually, because it's not scared of success. It's the people scared of failure. Maybe, because yeah, yeah. Actually, I think those people that would love the success and what they're just not able to do is take the risk of failure. Yeah, maybe that, maybe you're right, yeah. We've got another all-time great to end on. Someone who's embraced the importance of listening to a whole range of music to inform what it is you end up writing yourself. And that sounds simple, I know, but if you want to write pop songs, here we go, then you kind of need to be across pop music. Yeah, and I think there is definitely some truth in that. You need to, I think have an understanding of what's come before and where things might be heading. It's even just for referencing then at that point. You know, when you're in the studio, when you're writing, the ability to reference songs, it helps so much. And it's a... Often I'll find myself referencing a song and really you don't want the song to sound anything like what it is you're referencing. It's just the vibe in that song, the emotion, the atmosphere. I don't know. I don't know, I hope that makes sense. 
But no one has taken that to heart more than Sir Paul McCartney and his friend and mine, I hope, maybe, <laughs> Sir Elton John. Yourself and Paul McCartney, you mentioned as people that uh, sit down and have always sat down and listened to what's being released, where it's being released, mm. who's releasing what. Yeah. And that, to me, it is amazing. Yeah. It, I find that extremely inspiring. Um, and I'd love to, to... There's a lot of questions that I'd like to ask off that. First, the simplest question is how do you do it? Do you sit down once a month? Is it a fortnight? Is it weekly? Do you? It's every work? week. Okay. Um, is it scheduled? Yes, it is. I mean, it's just, it's just part of my routine. Um, in England now, and, and worldwide, releases uh, on records or CDs, whatever, come out on Fridays. Mm -hmm. It used to be Tuesday in America and Friday here, but they've now aligned themselves to Fridays. So on a Friday morning, I get a fax that comes through here with all the new releases on it. And I highlight which ones I want, how many I want, which house I want it sent to, blah, blah, blah. Um, but also I go on Amazon before that and see what's coming out in the months ahead and write that down. I've got a book that I write and I'll show you it. And then in America there's a site called Pause and Play that has things that are coming out and I go again, write them down weeks before they come out and send my request to the office in LA. Um, I do the same with books and I do the same with DVDs. Um, and it's part of being a fan. It's all, I always get excited about release day. Um, and it's just, you know, ever since I was a kid, I loved records. Um, and records were part of my family life. And getting a record was a treasure. And I still feel that way about getting a CD. I, you know, things like if you want to get a hip-hop record now, most of them, a lot of them don't come out on CDs. No, I know. It drives me you have, no, and, and so you have to get the office to burn them, because okay. I don't know how to. I don't download anything. Yeah. I've, n I've never downloaded anything, yeah. and I wouldn't know how to. So I like my physical CD. And, of course, now people, are, and like yourself, are putting things out on vinyl mm. straight away, um, which is great, because I love vinyl. I've, I sold all my vinyl in 1991 as the first fundraising thing for the Elton John AIDS Foundation to someone in St. Louis, the whole lot. And then... Recently, I've started collecting again because I just love the sound of it, and so I've gone crazy about recollecting vinyl. But it's nice now that new artists put their albums out on vinyl because I like, that's the way I like to listen to it. Other than that, I listen to things in the car. It's a long answer to a very short question, but yes, I just plan every week, like tomorrow is, is new release day, so at quarter to nine, quarter to ten, I'll get a fax coming through from the office with the new releases, I'll highlight them, I'll phone the office up straight away, and then they get delivered that day. Amazing. By the way, you're, you're in a good frame of mind, the new record is so up. Mm. The, first wasn't, the first was up, but this one is really, really, mm. really up. Thank you. I think I'm, that was kind of a... I had, you know, had a little hard time before this record, and I just realised the best thing to do is to sing yourself out of it. You're going to have to sing the songs every night. Right. Sing happy songs, and yeah. Just looking at your album here, here it is. Second single. Um, so it will be Shotgun. Yeah. What about Don't Matter Now? We released that last year. Yeah. As a, like to get on festivals yeah. and stuff like that, and then we released Paradise. Right. So we're going to release Shotgun. Yeah. And then I think a song on there called Hold My Girl. Yeah, second track on side two. But it doesn't matter now, you could re-release that again. Amazing. Yeah. Because I was uh, everywhere in the car. I'm pretty shiny people too. So you've got, you, you don't have to worry about singles on it. Amazing. I'm going to go back. I'm so I usually write in the studio, because I don't write at all until I get to the studio. In the old days, I used to stockpile songs, and I used to 
write them and then remember them without writing the chord sequence down or anything. I just used to remember them. And I said to Bernie, in the, over the next two or three years while I'm on tour, just send me lyrics, whatever you want to write. They could be as long as possible, as short as possible, it doesn't matter. And I'm going to write and I'm going to remember them. I'm not going to put them down to tape. I'm not going to put them on a DAT record or there's no DAT anymore. But I'm just, I'm going to remember them and, and go back to how I used to write. If I can do that, I don't know if I can do that, but I, that's the kind of thing I want to go back to now. I want to stockpile about 20 songs for the next record. Um, and when I stop touring, 2021-22, I will sit down and make a record a year again. Because that's why I won't have to fucking travel anymore. <laughs> yeah. I just want to re make records. Mm -hmm. I don't know how it works. Yeah, I, I, mean, I it's, know. It's, it's a mystery. And you know, I've never questioned it. No. And I've never had a writer's block. But then I don't go around. I don't play the guitar, so I'm not strumming around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I'm, I'm, it's like not having sex for like a year, and then you suddenly go mad and have sex. And that's what the writing's like. It's like, yeah. well, I'm really looking forward to this. I can't wait to get into the studio and write some songs. It's not that I'm sitting down there every day. Some artists, like Rufus Wainwright, play and write every day. I'm not interested. No. I'm not interested. I have other things to do. I've got children. I've got a f charity. I've got other things to listen to. I collect things. I want to. I have a great relationship with my husband. That's just as important. I, I now. think that's what worries me about people that write every day. It's like, well, where's their time to have a life to write about? Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, in the early in the early days, we wrote. I only wrote when I did an album. Yeah. Except the Elton John album we have and the Tumbleweed, we had the songs written, and Madman. And then when David joined the band, we started writing at the Chateau d'Ereville in France. Uh, we went the first time we went away to record. And I would get up in the morning and Bernie would be typing. It's so funny. And <laughs> I'd really have my breakfast and I'd go to the Fender Roads and I'd start looking at the lyrics and I'd write a, start writing the song. The band would drift down to breakfast. There would be a drum kit, a bass kit, a big amplifier and a, 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 a guitar. And then we would learn the songs that way and just go walk over the road and record them. And it was extraordinary. It was like... A little hit factory. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, but that was the first time we really started adding a guitar to my piano, bass, and drums. Completely changed the way I recorded mm. and wrote. Uh, because before that, my live lineup of Nigel and Dee never played on any of the records. Tonky Chateau was the first time as a band we recorded, and you can hear the difference. You can hear the total change in direction. Uh, and it was fabulous. The timing was so great. My instinct to add... Uh, I'd gone as far as I could with three. I needed to change and I... One thing that I would have liked to have touched on earlier, and I forgot to mention it, regarding the difference between pop music for each era, is when I put on a song like Tiny Dancer, it's two and a half minutes until the big sing-along chorus comes yeah. in, but it still holds your interest. Oh, up don't let the song go down to me. I mean, it's like, it's just a long time. But six I can get songs. away with releasing a single... I don't think anyone at the record label would allow me to entertain doing that. I don't think it would... We took, I mean, singles, Philadelphia Freedom's five and a half minutes long, Someone Saved My Life Tonight is six minutes long, and they played the whole thing, they didn't edit them. And they wouldn't say, oh, sorry, I'm going to do this because I'm feeling but in But because mood. I was king of the roof, they, didn't, they couldn't tell me not to. And so I had an advantage there as well. But there's, you know, I think you can do so much in a four and a half minute song, and if it's worth listening to. I mean, how long was Harry Styles' single? It was about six minutes, wasn't it? It's a bit too long, probably. Um, but he tried. You know, he said, fuck it, I'm going to release a six minute single. It depends what the song's like. You know. Yeah, yeah, I am... Um I don't think you've written your emotive 
classic songs yet. I think you, I think you, you've got that to come in your career. Yeah, I hope so. I no, you have. So because no. I, I feel like I've learned, you know, a lot between the first and second, but I still feel like I'm in my understanding's in its infancy. Yeah, of course it is. But I think it's much more easy to write a miserable sad song than it is to write a happy song. Right? I think so, and I think I push myself to deliberately try and. Well, you play oh, guitar, so yes. it's easier on a guitar. Yeah. On a piano, it's a nightmare. Right, trust me, one thing I feel I know is it is hard to write a happy song. Um, but I'm going to give it my best shot, as I need happy music in my life. And it's the, it's the music I find most enjoyable to write. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you've enjoyed George Ezra and Friends on songwriting. I hope you're all well. Yeah, bye-bye.